tonight we're going to talk about uh, Cadell's paper, the reflective note for dialectical thinkers that came from his uh, his PhD thesis. And uh, just a little bit of background to this paper, because it's quite funny. Um, so Cadella said that his master, uh, rather his PhD thesis came in, he wrote it in four sections. And the first section is about the past. The second section is about the present. The third section is about the future. And the fourth section, in his words, his time form completely collapsed. And so... This is from the fourth section where stuff gets weird. It gets dialectical. We start looking at history, perhaps in a slightly non-linear manner. And I love this paper as a kind of ground zero of um, of Cadell's thought, as well as a really useful tool for thinking about, um, <clears throat> or just thinking about how to apply some of the uh, the abstract philosophical ideas that he talks about Hegel and uh, and so on, uh, pragmatically and usefully to to dynamics of the present. What I realized as I was going through and making this presentation is actually it's such a fucking dense paper that there was no way to really sum it up or cover it all in the space of an hour. And so actually what I've done is I've uh, I focused on the sections that I actually told people would be easier to read first, which is the last section and kind of the introduction as well. So I've left the deep dive into Plato, Zizek, Lacan and uh, and Hegel. Uh, which might frustrate a couple of you, but I think actually those are sessions that can be done as standalone sessions in the future. Perhaps the smart thing to do would be to use the the the, the chapters on each of those thinkers as a way to begin investigating each of those thinkers. So with that said, let's dive into it. So I wanted to just start with this quote that comes from right at the end and not spend too much time on it, but throw it out there and then we'll return to it at the end and see if we've got any more uh, understanding of it. So what non-monism suggests is that these oppositional determinations can only be reconciled with the historical work of the subject. What non-monism is saying is that there is a point in engaging with the realm of opposites. It is not just appearances, that there is an effectivity in the appearances and we can find a cause of this effectivity in the self-referential loop of the divided subject itself. And then this is the important one-liner tweet. This is why the Hegelian axiom for the absolute is not only substance, but also a subject. So dialectics, what the fuck are we talking about? What is going on here? Well, dialectics is a method of thinking, right? It's, I guess, at its core, it's putting ideas into uh, into dialogue or battle or conflict or conversation with each other. And uh, and the quote from the paper that I think sums it up quite nicely, in this perspective, the why of dialectics, meaning why bother, is to avoid freezing your reason as an eternal truth. Frozen knowledge is not real knowledge. It is not real knowledge. It is not knowledge connected to the real life and mind. It is not knowledge which embodies the non-relationship and enacts the partial limitation. So the non-relationship is a concept that I think comes out of uh, Lacan, and it reflects this idea that we are ourselves divided subjects. Post-Freud, we can see that <laughs> we have uh, unconsciouses that we, by definition, are not conscious of. 
And so when I'm in a relationship with someone else, say with my girlfriend or with, uh, with Andrew or with Nils or whatever, there's the part, the conscious part of me that's trying to be in relationship with the conscious part of them. But then there's also all the other unconscious stuff that neither of us are conscious of. And it makes it, there's not actually a relationship there. There's only a partial relationship, but we have a tendency to seek out frozen systems on knowledge, frozen signifiers, frozen concepts that we use to try and um, explain it all and give us some kind of closure on the situation. So if we carry on with the quote from the passage, in many discourses, religious, metaphysical and scientific naturalistic discourses, for example, subjects tend to frame their language as if it is frozen in time, as if it is ahistorical. They try to frame their discourse as if their knowledge reflects an eternal truth or is an eternal truth. So this is clearly a critique of the way that religious metaphysics or indeed scientific naturalism tries to frame the world. So religious metaphysics saying, for example, you could say like a Christian metaphysics that the fundamental pattern is the birth, death and the rebirth or the resurrection or that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is the, like the, the fundamental pattern. And subjects within these discourses freeze themselves around these systems and constantly refer back to them, which actually prevents them from doing uh, thought in history in time. Similarly, it happens with, uh, with subjects of scientific discourse, even though Technically built into science is the idea that science is a method and that you're constantly generating hypotheses that can be tested, repeated, uh, invalidated, and so on. But many subjects do have a tendency to absolutize whatever scientific discourse they're in and then constantly walk around identifying only with that. So a kind of obvious example for me is like uh, you see it quite a lot is people talk about their their moods or their mental health, you might say, in terms of of brain chemistry. So I'm feeling this way because my brain chemistry is like this. I'm, uh, I'm feeling depressed because certain levels are low. I'm feeling elated because certain levels are high. I'm feeling horny because my brain chemistry is like this. I'm feeling like I want to go and pay a dominatrix to piss all over me because my brain chemistry is like this. <laughs> I say that last example because it's a bit, uh, it kind of takes it to the ridiculousness. And this is where the, uh, the psychoanalytic discourse centers right against the more frozen scientific naturalistic discourses. Is it really appropriate to investigate fantasy on the level of um, chemical processes, for example, that are always going to be the same in all situations? Moving onwards. So what dialectics forces us to confront is the movement of reason and the paradoxical becoming of eternal truth. There is no system of thought that can close itself off and complete itself. The only closure is the recognition that the truth is our very path of becoming, that we are the temporal annihilation of the truth, or the truth is temporal annihilation. So here it's basically saying that the systems of discourses, even our religious systems, our scientific systems, reflect real things about our own personal and indeed the general historical paths of becoming that cannot be excluded from these historical and personal paths of becoming. Truth is our path of becoming. And so we are the temporal annihilation of the truth, means that even in ourselves, to, 
if I adopt a certain truth, a certain discourse, I am annihilating or negating a previous truth or a previous discourse. So to be a subject in, say, the uh, the secular world and to adopt the secular scientific way of looking at the world is in itself a negation of the prior, say, classical religious way of being in the world, the, cl the classical religious way of seeing. So now a few more notes, and these are my notes. So the concepts, which are the product of our reason, are essential to the becoming of our spirit. We create identities, we create systems, we create philosophies, we create religions that describe where we're at, but they do also freeze us. And this is the tricky part, that the solution is neither in the absolute annihilation nor in the absolute reification. So we've already touched on the absolute reification uh, in the previous slide. The absolute annihilation, I see... I mean, we were arguing earlier in the Telegram, right? I think there's a tendency towards this in, uh, in say, the Buddhist way of looking at things in saying that concepts, uh, all concepts are kind of ultimately a delusion. All concepts ultimately lead us to, uh, to suffering. And so the solution is in annihilating the concept. Well, or no, the dialectical perspective says, actually, we have to move through the concepts. And even, <laughs> even the concept that concepts give rise to suffering is obviously a concept a subject has come up to this idea that concepts give rise to suffering for a real historical reason and that has to be included within this chance of trying to get outside of concepts there's no way to escape it and i put down at the bottom like we've got this thing you can even see as an example so romanticism wanted to get away from the rationalist concepts that were becoming very popular in the enlightenment and express a kind of preconceptual unconscious form of emotion but this itself is of course a concept and in time a new modernist concept emerges which doesn't even want to be limited to the romanticist concept so at least from the perspective of dialectical thinking it's almost impossible to get outside of concepts or at least the moment we want to talk about what we're doing, the moment we want to engage with other subjects, the moments we want to express or dialogue or think, we have to be in concepts. So here's a little riff on uh, on something I was writing in the Telegram earlier, because I was just thinking about the other day about, about New Age spirituality, right? And this to me is a dialectical way of thinking about New Age spirituality. It is an intuition that something isn't working that say the old classical forms of religion have died or they're no longer uh, fit for purpose uh we've moved into this secular rationalist atheist world but something is not working here either but the new age hasn't really thought a new unifying concept for itself it's given itself a name but it's not got a concept it's just an incoherent mess um Actually, I was having a good conversation with Raven Connolly about this because she's just spent the last um, year or two traveling around all of the uh, the various hippie and burner movements that are going and are still really legacies of the 1960s and before that. And there's there's so much creativity going on there. There's a lot of experimentation with drugs, with sex, with art, and it's interesting. But they haven't got a unifying logos, you could say. They haven't got a concept set that really holds the whole thing together. Um, there's just various attempts to make different little bits of stories work as concepts, whether it's the kind of sci uh, the psychedelic discourse that's saying transcendence and healing is what we need to do, or whether it's yoga or whether it's neo-Buddhism or whether it's neo-Hinduism or, or even the traditionalism. Uh, 
Because this brings us to another interesting point that it seems like certainly since Jordan Peterson within the new agey communities, more and more people have been grasping back towards tradition as if tradition has the eternal truth, uh, as if tradition can give the concept that late 20th century, early 21st century uh, spirituality and religion is longing for. But this just gets messy as well. Um, you can even see this in a community like in uh, in Manifesto that we came away from, right, that is coming out of new age spirituality and men's work, trying to go back to traditionalism, but saying we're, it's kind of encouraging everyone to explore a tradition, but without... Um, but without making like aggressive distinctions between traditions. And so it turns, it becomes postmodern. The very thing that the traditionalists are trying to get away from by going back to tradition, just end up in their own postmodern mess because it's just, well, some of us are Buddhists and some of us are Christians and some of us are philosophers and blah, 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 blah. And so my thinking is actually, and this is kind of playing with something Frogger's always saying, right? That the new age is not new age enough. And what we're doing in, in the communities around us, what Cadell and Bard seem to be leading in this work, is actually trying to lay the grounds for a real philosophy or a logos, a concept for the new age, which to date has just been messy and incoherent. You might agree or disagree with this analysis, but this is certainly where my thinking is going at the moment. I chucked this slide in because I realized that in the presentation that I'd made, I hadn't quite touched on these topics. And uh, I do think they are important in uh, in Cadell's paper um, as the two dominant trends that he sees in uh, in philosophical thinking. So we've got the deconstruction on one hand, which is uh, familiar to us as the the relativism, the uh, the postmodernism, you could say. That's saying there are no absolutes. Uh, everything is just relative. Um, like Cadell, I was talking to him yesterday and he gave the example of uh, Foucault when he was asked, what does immortality mean? And he would say, well, for the Hindus, immortality would mean this. For the Native Americans, immortality would mean this. For, uh, for other religious groups, immortality would mean this. So there's different framings of it. But there's no uh, there's no way of making meaningful or truthful distinctions between them. On the other side, you've got the meta language and this, uh, I mean, the word itself, right? Meta, so like outside, outside of language. So language is a system of symbols and signs that we use to talk about reality to make sense of it. Meta language implies that there's something outside of the language that, uh, that we can rely on, that is static, that is fixed. So this uh, this underpins a lot of, uh, you might say, like the scientific naturalistic discourse that outside of our attempts to get to the truth, there really is a world of, uh, of laws and rules and mechanisms that is just ticking on in the background like mathematical clockwork. Um, I always like Nietzsche's one-liner critique of this where he's like, well, all these people are trying to find the rules of how the universe works, but uh, where is the rule that says the universe has to follow its own rules? So the point for dialectical analysis, um, according to Cadell's paper, is to find a way between these two. So neither to just arrive at flat relativism where you, can know, you can't make meaningful distinctions between anything, but also not to arrive at a situation where you absolutize some concept of the one, that's the language he uses, some metalinguistic 
proposition that is true eternally and for all time and never changes. So now we're going to look at a couple of examples of what we might say is practical dialectical thinking from the paper. So uh, quoting, of course, for religious subjectivity, you would say that the notional ideal would be something like Jesus Christ or Buddha, the perfect subject. So the idea that if I'm a Christian subject, I'm looking to Christ as the model of what the ideal man would be like, manifesting uh, love, turning the other cheek. Uh, and similarly, if I'm, I'm a Buddhist subject, Buddha being a subject who has attained enlightenment, again, who manifests a kind of spontaneous, uh, spontaneous love, who has released himself from the delusions of an egoic mind. But A equals not A means that the religious subject cannot equal Jesus Christ or Buddha. In other words, there is an irreducible asymmetry between the actual identity and the virtual potentiality therein. So no matter how hard I try as Owen Cox, this particular subject, I can't make myself into Jesus. I get pissed off at people. I get resentful. I don't turn the other cheek. I lash out. I hit back. And this, over time, and especially you could say over successive generations through history, creates a problem. And the impossibility, well, because of this impossibility, A spontaneously transforms into B via the practical deployment of reason. So in other words, A, Owen Cox starts thinking, what the fuck is going on in this gap? There's me, there's my ideal of what I want to be, Jesus, say, uh, and I keep not getting there. And at first it's like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? But then maybe it's, maybe there's something wrong with this entire structure. Maybe the entire structure of wanting to become Jesus or wanting to become like Buddha is wrong. Maybe we don't need some transcendental model of love. Uh, maybe actually a more um, fitting uh, way of being in the world for the time that I live in, say it's like the 15th, 16th century, would be to become a, a kind of clear thinking, rational man who's able to do good business deals and manifest relationships with other people that way. So to the quote, what this means is that the religious subject becomes the secular subject through thinking through the impossibility of becoming his ideal. And with the secular subject in its most extreme manifestation, we get the formation of another impossible imaginary. So it's not like you get out of the game. In its most extreme manifestation, this impossibility might be something like someone attempting to become the subject of world communism or the subject of global utopia. In other words, the circular subject's impossibility may be something like the subject attempting to enact the ultimate notion of world peace and harmony. So you don't get away from having some ideal. The new secular subject has a new ideal for itself. It wants to say, be, like I said, the man of uh, complete scientific reason or the, uh, the good nationalistic subject, or the good communistic subject. The quote goes on, in our culture, we are approaching the impossibility of this identity, the secular identity. We're approaching the impossibility of the naivety of the secular subject. The idea that the secular subject can participate in a transformation of our world into a secular utopia. In that sense, B has to spontaneously transform itself into C, via the practical deployment of reason. However, at the moment, it's unclear what C is exactly. We're in the indeterminate fuzzy space. 
and the identity of C has not yet emerged. So here's a slide thinking about this from religious subject to secular subject to what is it? And operating in this indeterminate fuzzy space, you could say is a lot of the communities that we're familiar with through the internet. The intellectual dark web, the meaning crisis guys, Bard's work on synthism, um, the liminal web, <laughs> the Hegelians. All of these different discourses and ways of thinking are attempts to think of beyond of the secular subject. They're operating in this space of, well, something isn't quite working. And there's, there's a grasping about for something that is related, say, to religion or transcendence or to, um, to philosophy. But it's messy. We don't know what it's going to look like yet. Just like at the time when we were transitioning, say, from the, uh, the religious subject to the secular subject, we didn't know what it was going to look like. All we can really rely on is our own ability to think in the space and to test ideas and to see them not work. So that's a crucial point because it's very tempting with any of these ideas to turn it into an ideology and be like, okay, that's the one to go with. I'm going to become a synthist. Or Peterson is the guy to follow. Or, uh, or traditionalism is an idea to go for. And to, to just kind of essentialize it without really thinking without really testing it in dialectic, in arguing with other subjects, with trying to build projects based on these ideas and seeing what happens with them. And, uh, and the point that we have to grasp from the perspective of dialectics, it is a step into the unknown, a step into negativity, a step into the alien, right? Cadell's recent anthology is called Enter the Alien for this precise reason. As we try and think our way into the 21st century, if we're really thinking, we let go of any of the certainties of the uh, of the schools of thought we can draw from inspiration from all of them, sure. But it, it can easily be turned into an ideology. I think this is most clear with a guy like Peterson, right, who started out five years ago with, it seemed like he was really thinking in the crack between the secular subject, the religious subject, and what might come in the 21st century. He was really trying to put deep study of the Bible, say, into conversation with modern cognitive science and with psychoanalysis. And he didn't really know where he was going with it. He was just talking. What's happened five years later is he's kind of reverted to a very rigid, grumpy, conservative Christian identity that has nothing new to say to anybody. He's just got his followers. There's no thinking going on with him anymore. There's just preaching. It's an interesting one to think about. That that arc is really interesting to think about and to reflect on and to try and think, okay, what do we as thinkers have to do to try and avoid winding up in such a space where we're just recycling the same talking points over and over again and shouting at the world about them? So here's a graph of the last few slides. Based on... Uh, a picture in Cadell's thing, but I've slapped the pictures onto it, right? So on the top left, you can see that the religious subject, say my uh, my 15th century monks or my, uh, my Buddhist monk, the ideal that you're trying to transform yourself into, say with reason and spiritual practice, is into Christ or the Buddha to try and be like that. But it doesn't work. It fails. You fail to become your own notional ideal. And so over time, 
you start to think, you start to rationalize, you start to explore what's happening here and transform into the secular subject. And so I've got on the picture this nerd and this uh, and this guy, like Google incel, right? And uh, this guy came up. I think actually he was a fucking school shooter, but uh, alas. And then the bottom left, right, you've got the secular subject whose ideal might be something like uh, the scientist, the man of perfect reason that I've already spoken about, or say we've got here the, like the Aryan ideal, the good fascist man who's beautiful and blonde, who's works out, who loves his family, who's ready to die for his country and uh, doesn't have any decadent behaviors. He's just always there, always dependable. Um, Of course, there's many other notional ideals of the secular subject, but this is quite an obvious one. And, uh, Well, (laughs) the failure to become this ideal, which we seem to be confronting in the late 20th, early 21st century, is opening us up to the alien. We don't know exactly what the secular subject is going to become. So for just a couple of minutes now, uh, and we can do this quietly, I just want each of you to uh, reflect on what is your impossible imaginary notion? What is uh, something that you in your mind are trying to be like an ideal that you're trying to become or manifest, but failing to get to. Okay. Let's, uh, well, I hope some of you have got some answers to that. It's, it's an interesting question, especially because it's often where the most interesting and surprising creative stuff can come out. So I can give an example from my own life, which is that um, for a long time, I've been struggling with this impossible imaginary notion, you might say, of being somebody who doesn't look at porn and having a really fucking strong habit of looking at porn. As many of you guys know, I've talked about this before. Um, And going through a whole journey of trying to uh, get rid of it. So I got to the point, like I went through NoFap. I was like, that doesn't work. NoFap was a way of trying to reason in this gap between uh, the real of Owen, who likes to watch loads of porn, and the uh, and the impossible imaginary of being someone who doesn't. So no fap. And then that didn't really work. So then I became a 12 stepper and went to the uh, the 12, uh, the sex addicts anonymous and sat in that space and was trying to reason my way through. Aha, uh-huh, this is it. OK, this is what I've got to do for the rest of my life. And then um, maybe not. Then I decided to step away from that as well. And then surprisingly, what's happened in the last six months is that quite spontaneously, I just started doing these like weird erotic art pieces. So this is the piece that I made on Monday evening, right? And uh, I quite like looking at it, to be honest. But I never enjoyed art at school. I never really enjoyed doing art. Um, But this has spontaneously been born precisely from that crack in my identity that I've just been sitting in and oscillating in. And so the reason why I put that thing forwards is... um, just as in in the sense of like at the political level, we don't really know what comes next at the moment, but we just have to stay in the crack and try and think our way through it without getting caught up in ideology. Similarly, say in uh, the, the same thing, I think as if my experience is anything to go by can happen in your personal life. And it's very bizarre. Um, like another example, right, is that when I started out podcasting, I was caught up in this fantasy that I was going to be like Joe Rogan. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to be another Joe Rogan. And very quickly, I had to confront the fact that I uh, I did not have the tech skills. I didn't have the, the, the charisma. I didn't have anything that Joe Rogan has. And out of that 
that fucking impossibility, TechnoSocial was born. And now this thing here, the Parallax Sangha is happening. <laughs> so it was born out of my striving to be an impossible ideal. Another example is from uh, the church to the state. So this is also from Cadell's paper, right? The religious subject makes the church and the church's ideal is the kingdom of heaven. But of course, in this construction, A does not equal A. By forming the church, you do not form the kingdom of heaven. And this is a real that corrodes the church from within. So the church is supposed to be the most heavenly place, but real power struggles play out there. You go there and you see the differences between the rich and the poor. You sexual scandals happen in the church. The stuff that the church is supposed to be our safe haven from. And so in the course of history, enlightenment thought starts to deploy its reason to sublate the contradictions inherent in the church, thinking, well, if this space is supposed to be the best place, but all of these painful, real issues in life are just as present there as they are anywhere else, then maybe we don't need this church thing at all. Maybe this church thing is actually just serving the rich and the powerful <laughs> and not us. And so you get to the idea of the state, which is subordinating the power of the church. And so A is turning into B. But the problem is then that this, the state has its own ideal, the secular utopia. And we still have that ideal very much alive today. That's the idea of progress, right? That through technological development and rational thinking and democracy, we're going to get closer and closer towards this secular utopia, but it seems that we're also reaching a limitation of this ideal today and the, and the state is potentially corroding from within in terms of in because of its own impossibility. So the power struggles today in the state uh, are very real. And um, it seems like also with the emergence of the, the tech class with the digital world, now we've got a new totally international class with unbelievable wealth and unbelievable power over just about everybody else in the world that are not really subordinate to any states. They're a totally new class and they can kind of, uh, they can behave with a lot of impunity. And so we end up in the 21st century trying to deploy, deploy its reason to actually think through the issues with the state. And we might end up with some of the, uh, the other movements that we see today, right? Like the network state stuff, game B stuff, Cryptocurrency, the libertarian ideas around exit, um, autocracy. Uh, so put down nuclear wasteland Somalia, right? Because uh, we also have to reckon with the fact that if uh, if we end up in a World War One style situation with the war in Ukraine at the moment and nukes get launched all over the place, then we might well just be in a place with warlords uh, really reverting back to that sort of uh, that sort of state. It's impossible to really think exactly to know what's going to happen all we can do again is rely on this practical deployment of reason so again here we have to be wary of turning any of these movements that might be appealing into ideologies i think this is very off uh, very obvious for example in the world of cryptocurrencies uh, where there's a sense that everyone is really buying their own kool-aid that cryptocurrency is going to deregulate finance and create a brave new world and everything's going to be fantastic for everybody who bought crypto. 
even though there seems to be a massive fucking market crash at the moment. Now, this is not to say that that idea is wrong. This is not to say that cryptocurrency isn't going to radically transform society and give a load of people financial freedom that they didn't have before. But it's not certainty. We have to think it through and we have to be prepared for it not to work out. I made this little slide here as well, because just to just to hear that uh, a couple of the like popular things you hear sometimes around at the moment, right? This we need to have a conversation or we need new spaces or we need to come together or we need to sense make or something. This stuff isn't actually thinking. Thinking is having the actual conversations and debates and the arguments and the battles. So like what we were doing on the telegram earlier, that was very good. I've said to Andrew actually in our private meetings, I think this year in our community, we do need to move more into um, active debate and discussion and argument with each other like the uh, the liminal web space has spent a couple of years um, sitting around as, no, we're not sitting around, but networking and being like, okay, something's wrong. We really need to do something about the world. Um, but we need to start putting this into practice, which means inevitably running into issues and going into conflict. So below we've got this formula, right, which comes from Hegel, the abstraction, the negation, and the concretion is how an idea comes into being. What this means is that I can give a practical example. Um, where we are today, the Parallax Sangha started as an abstract idea with Andrew and I saying, maybe we could run a, uh, I think it was, maybe we could run uh, like a culture club or a reading group for men as part of Manifesto. Uh, so then we hooked up with Eskil. We just got talking to Paul. We started to put it into action. And uh, the plan was to try and do it like a business and uh and, and for it to be a men's thing and what happened during the course of the first year well the business didn't really work out it didn't really grow at all but it turned into a very tight-knit close community that also managed to get itself kicked out of uh of the men's network that we were a part of and so it concretizes into the parallax sangha which was not what we set out to create but that's where we're at and then this process is going to repeat itself. Like right now we've got the parallax sangha and we've got an idea of maybe what we would like it to look like in a year's time. We've got an idea of a curriculum. We've got an idea of who we want to be involved. We've got an idea of um, potential funding stru structures. We're going to try and put these into practice and they're going to go wrong. We're going to have to confront serious issues. We're probably going to have fights. We're going to have upsets. Uh, things aren't going to work. And where we're going to be at in a year's time or two years time or or three or five years time is something that none of us can really predict right now. But this is where the importance of actually putting stuff into test is. If you've got an idea, um, test it out with other people, see if they resonate with it. If you've got a, I think oh, this also goes for artworks, right? If you've got artworks, it's very tempting to kind of sit on them at home and never show them to anybody and kind of be in your narcissistic thing of, well, my my work's great. Um, no, you've got to put your art out there in the world. <laughs> Alistair Crowley's got this line, right? The, the first duty of any poet is to impose himself on his generation. You have to put it out there and then see what happens, see how people respond to you. That's that's the process of really just struggling, what, discovering what the thing is. And, uh, and this last bullet point, right, this is just a reference to Peter Thiel, because I like it. I think about this quite a lot, is this idea of thinking from zero to one, not one to X. So think an idea that's new. Think of projects that's new, not something that uh, that you're mimicking. Uh, Thiel is Gerard's student, right? So it makes sense. He thinks in terms of mimicking. Don't 
mimic other people with your projects, with your thinking, and don't recycle ideas. This goes back to that thing of frozen reason, right? Just reaching to a tradition or a philosophy precisely because it's there and it's in the past and someone's thought it before is no guarantee that it's the appropriate thing for this particular moment, for the constellation of power and sex and money and everything else in this moment. So here's just a little graph of that uh, previous slide as well with the uh, the church and not becoming the kingdom of heaven and becoming the state, the state not becoming the secular utopia. And we're in this state now where we're trying to think a politics for the 21st century. What does it look like? What does politics look like in an age of networks and uh, transnational or post-national alliances and uh, social networks that are no longer limited to physical space? We don't know. All we know is it's going to be messy. Even from, again, the history of this project, right? The history of this project has been messy. We had to deal with real politics with Manifesto. And that was not nation-state politics, and that was not either business politics. It was some other kind of politics. There's a slide I made here, which I called Against Taoism. That's not actually a line in uh, in Cadell's paper. But uh, I think it... it does sum up this idea of not just going for a kind of simple unity between the two dialectical poles that we think of. So the quote from Zizek, the opposition of poles conceals the fact that one of the poles already is the unity of the two. Thus, the goal is not to reestablish the symmetry and balance of the two opposing poles, but to recognize in one pole the symptom of the failure of the other and not vice versa. So we might say in more uh, practical terms, the secular society equals the classical religious society plus its failure. The classical religious society failed to become its own ideal. And so through deploying reason became the secular society. But the classical religious society does not equal the secular society and its failure. In a sense, the secular society already is a move that holds the classical religious society and its failure in it. So they don't just fit together in a neat way. However, what I do think, and uh, this isn't in Cadell's paper, but this is uh, my thinking, is that the new forms of religion today do reflect the secular society and its failure. But what this means is that, say, the post-Pisasonian YouTube Christianity or... Uh, or a lot of the traditionalism to, that goes around today is not the tradition that it talks about at all. Uh, it is something that has moved through the dialectic of the failure of secular society. So this kind of brings back to the uh, the argument on the Telegram group today a little bit, right? I uh, I resist this idea that uh, that religion is the absolute, or religion is this kind of transhistorical absolute. All of the subjects who are going back to religion today are going back to religion through a period of atheism. They're going to religion because their lives in secular society were unmanageable, were unbearable. Uh, they hated something in secular society, and so they became religious. This has to be included within the concept of contemporary religion today. We are not the same type of religious subjects that religious subjects were prior to the Enlightenment. So here's what the, the one-liner, right? Traditionalism is a thoroughly modern phenomenon. And this is why something, again, like radical Islam or like 
um, Alexander Dugin's ideas about an orthodox Russia or return to tradition are quite terrifying because they, they masquerade as being returns to something that existed in the past, but they are thoroughly, thoroughly modern and, uh, and they have nuclear weapons. They have bombs. This slide basically says that same thing, right? The new religious forms are actually new dialectical emergences. They're not returns, even though, and this is where you can see there's an ideological issue or there's a, there's a uh, contradiction within them. They frame themselves as just being returns to something eternal, but they're actually new emergences. This is, uh, this slide, I think this is where Cadell is I think this is important. It doesn't quite follow on from what we were just saying, but it, I think it is important to emphasize um, Cadell's critique, right, of uh, what he sees as Eastern non-dual metaphysics. And this is perhaps a, a point that's going to spark some conversation, I think, because uh, maybe Andrew in particular doesn't agree with it. But Cadell would say, in dialectical thinking, the dualistic appearances have a meaning related to the division between A and B and the emergent super or anti-space of C. So that goes back to what we've been talking about, right? In this structure, parts are struggling for the meaning of the whole, and our partial engagement changes the whole because the whole manifests through the parts. In other words, so we've got, say, the uh, the traditional religious subject, we've got the secular subject, and now we've got a third type of subject emerging today, maybe the, the new new age subject, which manifests through these parts changing how we think about the whole the, the entirety of the whole changing how we think about the secular society changing how we think about the uh, the religious society and this is historically meaningful it has real implications for philosophy for religion for art for politics it's not just another manifestation of appearance in the eastern view there are struggling parts but the whole is at rest Thus, in Eastern metaphysics, there is no C term where a radical engagement with the appearance makes meaningful historical sense. One should simply recognize the historical illusion and return to a pre-subjective unified reality before the introduction of a division. That's the, the idea of non-dualism, right? That, okay, history is an illusion. Maybe it seems to manifest in a duality. There's a contradiction here. There's a conflict here. But actually, that conflict doesn't really exist. That conflict isn't ontologically productive. That's the main point of Cadell's critique. That conflict isn't ontologically productive. If anything, it obscures the reality, which is the, the non-dual state of being beyond suffering. Whereas the dialectical position is, no, it is actually that conflict through which new historical thought, new historical being will emerge. And that is spirit. I think... Tantra is potentially trying to see beyond this. Um, so this idea that like form is emptiness, but form is also form, that non-duality is a non-duality between duality and non-duality. So there is some kind of reality, like a real reality to the manifestation of form. Um, but still within at least tantric metaphysics, there's not a theory of history. There's no description of the coming to be of particular ideas. There's a kind of static concept of the process but it doesn't go down to the level of the content. And so it's maybe useful for a way of training yourself to be in the world, but it's still not philosophy. I think this is, uh, this is just summing up a little bit, right? That often religion subjects remain frozen in time with their eternal concepts. So like some of these chaos and order or form and emptiness, 
They don't include their particular historical singularity of themselves. So why did I become religious at X point of time? Or why did my religion emerge? Why did it die out? Why is it popular again? And this is what I was trying to make the point in the telegram, right? That because we now have theories, sciences in a sense of archaeology, of anthropology, of history, of deep history, um, these discourses explain religions. And religions have to reckon with these discourses that explain them and not just attempt to stand outside of them. And it's the same with scientific subjects as well. Often scientists don't include why they researched and developed their own theory at a particular point in time or why the theory even became possible. Um, it's like if Charles Darwin, for example, had had his theory 300 years before him, he probably would have been burned at the stake and it never would have gotten anywhere. There was something particular about his point in time that actually has to be included within the idea that often isn't. So then this slide, right? Well, what about dialectical thinking itself? Isn't Hegelian philosophy just another moment in the uh, in the in the dialectic of uh, historical reason? Well, this is actually where I'm at the limits of my philosophy to argue. Um, I think this is this does seem to be one of the big problems that 20th century philosophy has battled with as long as as far as guys like Cadell have explained it to me. But like you've got guys like Deleuze who are trying to get beyond Hegel. Um, but it's not clear necessarily if people have gotten beyond Hegel yet. Uh, Dimitri might be able to throw some stuff in here on, on this matter as well. But uh, this meme is just uh, it's funny, right? There's this idea that people are constantly trying to go beyond Hegel or. Um, or think outside of Hegel or say, maybe Hegel's not everything, but uh, these pesky Hegelians with their philosophy always seem to find a way to worm their way back in. So let's, uh, let's do a little bit of interactive stuff because I've been talking for quite a while. So Cadell ends the paper right with a list of these various oppositions that he says uh, structure our century. So what I'd like to do is put us into some breakout rooms. Uh, probably, oops, how many of us are there? 13. Um, so maybe groups of three and one group of four. And what we will do is each pick one of these uh, one of these oppositions that seems uh, say interesting to you or ontologically productive to you that's uh, related to to something that's real in your uh, in your life in your thinking in whatever it is that you do at the moment uh, or you could pick something else you could pick another opposition so when we did the the thinking exercise earlier maybe you'd uh, maybe something came up there uh, and just spend say two three minutes each free associating around it. So not necessarily trying to just list off everything you know about it, but speaking in the crack of it, especially relating yourself to the crack of it. So if I just pick individualism and collectivism, maybe I'd say, so when I was 19, I was really into individualism. And then when I was 24, I got more into collectivism and so on. And just speak and see if anything interesting or especially alien comes up. Right. The good news is, so we've just done that. All I want to do now is come back to this uh, quote that I started with, which is the what non-monism suggests is that the oppositional determinations can only be reconciled with the historical work of the subject. 
What non-monism is saying is that there is a point in engaging with the realm of opposites, and it's not just appearances, that there is an effectivity in the appearances, and we can find a cause of this effectivity in the self-referential loop of the divided subject itself. This is why the Hegelian axiom for the absolute is not only substance, but also a subject.